talk for a while tonight and then maybe have some time for discussion or whatever. As I was driving here, I, I listened to our, um, our president delivering his State of the Union address. <laughs> you missed it, if you have. But I'm sure there'll be reruns. I was basically listening to see if there were any good stories but <laughs> that I could use in tonight's talk. However, he seems to be telling a different kind of story than we do here. So, <laughs> The talks um, that we have in these evenings, in a way, are really just reminders. They're talks about things that for the most part, in some deep place in ourselves, we already understand or we already know. So if I talk about letting go, as I did a couple of weeks ago, everybody goes, ah, oh, right, thank you. I, I might have forgotten it in the supermarket this afternoon, but I remember it now. Um, and it's healing, and it's very helpful. Or if I talk about awareness or the basic things of spiritual life. Tonight I'd like to talk about beginnings and endings. Um, to make it very succinct, I could say, everything has beginnings and endings. And if you could understand that enough, that would be quite sufficient. We could just stop right here, have a party or something. It's kind of mysterious when you look at it that everything has beginnings and endings. Everything. Everything that arises, changes, and passes away. Every single thing. How do we relate to the fact that everything has a beginning and an end? Some people kind of turn their glance away and don't let themselves look at the endings. Other people get so into the endings they write great movie scripts about it and weep and gnash their teeth and tear their hair. There are a lot of different ways one can relate to it, but it's still just a basic fact. Everything has a beginning and an end. Sensations, moods, physical bodies, breath, trees, automobiles, mountains. I was going to talk tonight about something different, and reflecting about it got me onto this topic. I was going to talk about how people got started in their spiritual practice, and I will do that some evening, um, because there are so many wonderful stories. Just about everybody I know has an equally unusual and odd story of what got them to their first guru or their first whatever it was. In my case, the, the beginning of my practice started as, as best I can remember, when I was about 14 or 15. And my mother gave me a book by T. Lobe Sang Rampa called The Third Eye. <laughs> T. Lobe Sang Rampa was a plumber in London who fell out of a tree one day in his yard while he was pruning it or something and was knocked unconscious. And when he came to, he declared that he had switched <coughs> consciousness with some old Tibetan lama and began writing these great books about Tibet, the third eye being one of them, that are seem partly true and partly you know, well-researched perhaps at the British Museum and maybe partly made up, but they were great for me. Um, and I, I read it and I said, gee, there must be something more to this life than I've seen already, because he had llamas levitating and all kinds of exciting stuff. And it made me, actually it made me value over the years since then all of the odd ways that we do begin things. That you might say, well this is a false start. Or this, does it, this isn't really the right way. But there are so many things that will draw one into a spiritual life or be the seed for the beginning of that, for that to start awakening. I was looking in the East-West Journal this month and there's an ad I won't make any comments particularly about it, but for a Japanese teacher, Reverend Shoko Asahara, um, the Om, the religion of truth, and it shows four pictures of people um, hopping or levitating. They use both words. Um, 
and it says that if you practice in this way, you can awaken your kundalini in two months, experience the astral world in three months, have great psychic powers like hopping in one year, get to samadhi in two years, and have emancipation, absolute freedom and happiness in three years or less. Money back. It's in New York, however. You have to live in New York to do this. I'm sorry to say. Himalayan yoga, shaktipat, Japanese tantric religious practice. Um, the one thing, though, that's striking to me about it, I, mean, I don't know, it might be interesting, is watch their four pictures of guys there all in full lotus kind of hopping or whatever off their, off their cushions. They all look like they're trying very hard. They have this kind of expression on their face. So it's not a relaxed kind of practice. But, you know, whatever... I'm, I, I mean, I'm sure if I had a chance to, to practice it, I'd learn something useful. So I don't, I don't mean to completely dismiss it or put it down. There's so many different flavors of spiritual life and so many things that, that, that people start with. But what spiritual life is really about, as is probably obvious to all of you, isn't so much a question of levitating or, or such feats. Um, there's a really bad pun in there, but we'll leave it. Um, <laughs> but it's more opening to something that is greater than our small self, that's more mysterious and vast. And bringing a free and wise heart to this stance of being born and dying, this realm of birth and death. Now, in the process of paying attention, mindfulness, which is the basic practice we've been working with here, the practice of being aware, is usually taught and described as two words in Sanskrit or Pali, sati-sampajanya. Sati means to pay attention or to see what's present, an awake quality. And sampajanya means to see what's happening with it. So that there are really two parts to our paying attention in meditation or in our life. One is to see what's right in front of our, our nose, so to speak, what's actually here. And the second is to observe it or discover what its true nature is, and that's sampajanya. To put it in another language, also Buddhist, in all of the Buddhist Abhidharma, our psychology, which is a number of great, vast volumes of books and, and literature, is divided into two parts. The first big part of the Abhidharma is all the elements that you can discover if you look close enough that make up this world of senses and body and mind and, and hearing and seeing and smelling and so forth. 52 mental factors, 108 kinds of consciousness, uh, 16 Brahma realms, um, uh, all, all kinds of... Uh, 28 physical elements and derived elements. So all the little pieces, if you look closely enough, you see that it's just made of different elements. That's half of it. The other half, called the patana, is the, the teaching of relations, which is that you see all of what's here as particular moments of experience, and then the second half describes how one moment transforms into the next. So you see that there's a moment of seeing or smelling or color or taste or form or thought. And then you begin to discover also its transformative nature. So the instructions in meditation practice are pretty simple. Pay attention to the breath, and while you're at it, notice that it starts and that it ends. Pay attention to thoughts or to moods or to feelings or to images. Pay attention to your steps as you walk or movement. Pay attention outside. Look at the leaves on trees or the seasons until that which is true about life, everything that begins, ends, becomes so clear to you that all the ways that we have of hiding or pretending or avoiding or imagining or hoping or all those strategies, um, they don't work so well anymore and we start to see it. If we just knew that, if we could really get that in our cells, in our heart, in our breath, in our being, 
that everything has a beginning and an end and could relate to it from our hearts with some gracefulness, I think that would be enough in spiritual life. Remember I told about this old monk that I met at the forest monastery. One night we were outside and um, after late night chanting and looking up in the starry sky there was a big um, bright star in the middle of the Big Dipper which was one of the echo satellites that was uh, predominant in the 1960s. Very, very bright. And talking with this old monk and the other monks there and they were asking what was that was and I said it was a satellite and tried to explain to them about satellites by picking up a rock and getting my flashlight and explaining how the earth is round and, and that the, the sun is over here and the earth turns in this way and rockets work like blowing up a balloon, doing the whole physics 101 thing with these monks who all had, for the most part, fourth grade educations. And um, this old monk who was there was very wonderful and was the abbot of a nearby temple, very kindly and quite wise. Many people came to him for all kinds of advice and counsel. But he didn't particularly believe what I said, and his view was that the world was flat, which is more or less how he'd seen it in his life, and his education didn't teach him anything that was very different about it. Um, it really didn't matter for his living well whether he knew it was round or not. And I, I remember one very embarrassing moment. I was studying at a Burmese monastery for a long time. Toward the end of my stay there, a professor, uh, the, the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at um, an Ivy League school of medicine, uh, I forget which it was, I think it was University of Pennsylvania or, or um, Yale or one of those places, came to visit and was interested in Buddhist meditation. And it was just around the time that, the, that our uh, first uh, moon walk happened. And that was all in the news. And so he was talking about it and the teacher I was translating for said, no, they, they couldn't possibly have gone to the moon. Um, there's a big mountain called Mount Sumeru or Sinero right in the middle of the uni universe and parts of the earth lie around it and I mean it's almost like on the back of a big turtle and so forth and, and when you go to a certain level of the mountain you get big rocks which is what they brought back it proves that they want, went, went to Mount Sumeru and not up to the moon and he gave this whole long thing which I had to translate for instead of giving him the teachings of the meditation this professor was just kind of shaking his head as he listened to it all It's really simpler than that. It's not a question of a lot of beliefs. Spiritual life isn't having some vast knowledge or scientific understanding. It's a lot more immediate than that for us. It's finding the rhythms and the beginnings that start every breath and every moment and every interaction and every day in our life. These last few warm days have been like a, a, a false start for spring in some way. They've been so warm and go outside and I was pruning a couple of trees and looking at all the little buds and everything was saying, is it spring yet? It was really all ready to do it. But it's, I said, still January, you guys. <laughs> See if you can hold it together for a little longer. It's, it's much more immediate than all this grandiose stuff. It's seeing, as um, Suzuki Roshi says, that even under the snow there's fresh green sprouts of grass to be found. Um, and starting to listen to the rhythms of our breath and our hearts and the seasons of the life around us, the rhythms of nature, the rhythms of what our own body needs, the rhythms of relationships, of times you really come close together and times for solitude. And learning some respect and grace in relating to the beginnings of things and the endings of things. Zen Master Ryokan, the, the, the Japanese poet <coughs> so beloved in Japan, 
He has a whole series of poems all about spring. The children run to greet me for the first time this spring. How they have grown. Playing ball with the village children this warm, misty spring day. No one wants it to end. In just a few lines, he gets such a strong feeling of that moment where you just don't want it to end. Or you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time, how they've changed, how they've grown. In my bowl, spring violets and dandelions are mixed together with the Buddhas of the three worlds. What a wonderful vision he had. Thirsty, I fill myself with sake, lying beneath the cherry blossoms. Splendid dreams. He has a good time, this guy. <laughs> the spring birds have all returned and their song dri- drifts from every tree. Let's have another cup of sake. <laughs> but he has, he has all the sides. He's not just spring poems. Only two of us in the garden, plum blossoms at their peak and an old man full of years. Counting days is like snapping one's fingers. Even May passes like a dream. And he's so beloved because he sees this spiritual truth in such an immediate way with the children, with the trees, with his sake, with himself and the, the tree in the garden. Everything has a beginning. Life is always recreating itself arriving, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, to be a bird in its new nest or a caterpillar in the bud or a jewel in a stone, over and over and over again making itself. Even not just outside us, but maybe most importantly within us. There's a kind of garden or a fertility in our being that's equal to all the good compost you have in your best garden plot if you look at it and see. And everything that comes to its end brings its opposite. Did you ever notice looking at the seasons of your heart that when you acknowledge your anger or your resentment and that moves through you then there's a place for a much deeper connection of love with another person. Or when we accept our doubts or our fears and really accept them and allow them to move through us. If we accept our fear, then there comes some place of trusting. And if we, if we can see doubt, here we are sitting and it says, this is too hard or I can't do it or it's not working or my life isn't whatever. You know that voice? And you say, oh, there's doubt, that's okay. That just comes and has a beginning. It's a certain condition for a while, and it goes. And when you accept it, there comes this beautiful place of balance where doubt turns into wisdom or acceptance or ease or space. Meditation is really like the breath, or it's like the leaves and the trees, or whatever it happens to be that you notice in nature. Nature is really good about that, especially the living forms around. It's so obvious how it changes. And then you sit and you look at your mind and it has seasons. It makes stories. What do we do with the various stories that arise as we sit or as we relate to our spouses or our lovers or our partners or our work friends? generally we get into them for a while and say yeah this is how it is and it it gets a lot more solid and then all of a sudden there's like someone pops the bubble and you go oh right that was just a thought that was just a story and here we are again with a new beginning and a new moment and the amazing thing about spiritual life is that you can always start again no matter how far out you go and how lost or how confused or how difficult it is, in one moment, you can make a new beginning. Just that moment of waking up. And that's really part of what practicing meditation is about, too. The beginnings and the endings 
actually are so close together. I've said it in other nights. It's like when you're born, you take the ticket and they tear it in half at the movie theater. One part is that's your birth, and the other part you hold on to for a while, you redeem later, is your death. T.S. Eliot, the four quartets. What we call the beginning is often an end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from, and every phrase and sentence that is right, every word that is at home taking its place to support the others, Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every poem is an epitaph. And any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone. And that is where we start. We die with the dying. See, they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them again. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration, for history is a pattern of timeless moments, one after another. And then he goes on the part, I won't read the whole thing, of we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. Everything which has a beginning has an end. Can we really digest that and feel it and understand it? Because that's what allows us to live our life, to live in the moment, to live freely, to live awake, is to live with that truth that everything has a beginning and an end. What would it take for us to make a new beginning in our life? To live in the reality of the present today, what would it take each of us? We all face a great deal of change. Every single one of you is right now in your life facing a great deal of change. Is there anybody who isn't? Please raise your hand. I want to see this person. Isn't that amazing? Because it feels like, boy, I'm really in a time of change now. And then you look around, and that's true for everyone else. I mean, even if you have a stable family or a stable job, still, I'll bet there's something else that's in some great change. And how do we relate to it? What in our heart and in our wisdom do we bring to that? Let me ask you, what's trying to be born today in your life this spring? What in your heart wants to flower or find a new expression in you? Think of that. What covers that? What keeps that from blossoming? What's trying to be born anew in your life that needs acknowledgement, that hasn't really been acknowledged? This is something new. It might be scary, it might be risky, it might not even be what you want to be born, but there it is, it's changing anyway. What is it? What's that fact? or two or three. <coughs> to live from that place in the heart, the heart of acceptance, to have a, a flexibility of our being, a flexibility of our heart, <coughs> requires a kind of acceptance. That's part of mindfulness. Mindfulness means acceptance of what is, including of the things that are here that we would rather weren't true. See, sometimes you can't wait. You're so excited that everything changes. And then other times you go, oh, it's terrible. I wish everything didn't change. But either way, it just does it anyway. So what is it? What difficulties? What things have arisen in the 10,000 joys and sorrows for you in your life that are asking for acceptance because they're true, 
because they are changing. Aging for some people, it's true. Or sickness, or the bus strike, or the stock market. Things that have changed that are true. Or children leaving home, or divorce, or beautiful things that are changing and opening. You know, there's that famous um, old uh, gravestone that's in one of the cemeteries in New England that's engraved on it that says, um, I knew this would happen. So the question is, what is it time to accept? And then if your mind says, well, I'm not sure about that, that's it. That's the one. (laughs) So to live mindfully is to see the beginnings of what's new in your life, in this earth, your relationships, your work, your, your inner spiritual life. To live with mindfulness in another way is to find a sense of trust. Do you want to know something you can trust? Everything has a beginning and an end. You can really rely, if you want to rely on something, if you want a money-back guarantee, that's it. Everything has a beginning and an end. Everything which begins, ends. And as one begins to trust it, you can see the amazing process of life. Again, this is a part of spiritual practice. Seeing something with a vision and a heart that's broader than just this small self and physical body. Because you start to see that what life as a force is about is creativity and beginnings and endings. Ten hundred thousand million forms of plants and insects and animals and birds and creatures of the sea. And then life says, well, let's try another hundred thousand. We'll try that (coughs) kinds of species, see how they do for a while. And then they die away and then they make some new species. And just go walk in in a jungle or a place where life is really kind of exploding and every place you look it's it's got some other form but he doesn't even take that really up at spirit rock in that land that for the center the nature conservancy before selling it to us did an inventory of the kinds of um, plants and grasses that live there and it's mostly just open california meadow and there were hundreds of species. I, I don't know who went out there and named them all, you know, Alice, John. There were so many names of species, all in Latin, mind you, listed pages and pages of things that were just living in what looked like in part a cow pasture. Extraordinary. And these ones are native to California, and these ones came from Australia, and these migrated from Hawaii or whatever, and these ones have m- melded with those other ones. And here's life just creating more and more of itself. More children are being born every day. Wonderful thing. So trust is really trusting that the process of change is okay. That beginnings and endings are natural. That seasons are are natural. That, That times of solitude and times of outer activity are natural. Our culture doesn't like that very much. You get air conditioning and heating and you kind of set it at 68 or whatever it is and try to keep it that way throughout the year. And so there's fear of change. And you see it on TV, which is primarily entertainment rather than looking very much at life. Or the numbness that comes, unfortunately, in a lot of our culture from people through speed, through excess work, through violence that's, I mean ubiquitous in in movies and television and so forth until you get numb to it. 
I've been reading you some things from this book of Ajahn Sumedho. He's talking about virtue at one point and going through the precepts of refraining from killing and stealing and sexual misconduct and so forth. He says, on the other hand, I'm talking about the monk's life and how he's found his celibate life to be actually very easy after a while and very relaxed. He says, on the other hand, most of our cultures tend to jazz that up, sexuality, and they, if you're ups, if upset or frightened or bored or restless, then try a good sexual fantasy in your meditation, he says. And then violence gets exciting, and this is what they put together on TV. People like to look at those things in, in the cinema. If they made a film about a celibate monk keeping his practice, very few people would appreciate it. <laughs> it would be a very boring film. But if they made a film about a monk who broke all his precepts, they'd make a fortune. <laughs> and it's true in a way. We get somehow our culture, there's a problem in it. It skewed us to a level of conflict and activity and violence and numbness where it's hard for us to see something deeper, the level of speed and stimulation. And I guess that's a reason to sit and it's a reason to take time in solitude. It's a reason to take time in the woods, to reconnect ourselves with some deeper level of nature that we are a part of. It's not separate from us through the busyness of our, our work and, and the media and so forth. And when you touch that, when you go into the woods or when you listen to your breath or your longings and your yearnings and your hopes and fears and, and the things inside more deeply, you, you get in touch with that rhythm. You cannot avoid seeing change, feeling change, understanding it. And from that, at first, may come fear. Uh-oh. Everything that has a beginning has an end. But after a while of seeing it, there comes a kind of trust and a really deep sense of ease. Did you know that American money didn't always say, in God we trust on it? In fact, it was placed on there rather recently in the 1930s. You know why? because the 1930s were also when the money went off the gold standard. <laughs> That's right, folks. Before then, it just said, be redeemable for an ounce of gold. And then when they took the gold away, they had to have something, right? <laughs> so it said, instead, well, you've got to trust in something. <laughs> may not be such. It's all, in, it's all done with mirrors. That's right. It's all because we believe it that it works. That's all. Mullah Nasruddin had at one time in his yard this very fat and, and uh, splendid lamb and all of his neighbors were covetous of lamb curry but they couldn't get him to make it into curry, poor lamb, whatever. Um, Finally, one day, after trying all kinds of ruses and celebrations and things to which Nasruddin would not have a part, they came as a group and told him that the world was ending in 24 hours. And so they might as well have their lamb curry. And alas for the lamb, Nasruddin agreed and they had a great big banquet. And then after eating it all, they were tired and they fell asleep. Nasruddin, feeling a little cold, built a big fire and gathered up all their clothes and coats and things and threw them in it. <laughs> they woke up and saw that rather dismayed and he said, but brothers, what is the worry? Didn't you but recently tell me the world is ending tomorrow morning? <laughs> Somehow we need to learn to trust more. And I don't mean to be trusting in a naive way, but trusting in a very deep way of our own goodness, trusting of the human heart, trusting of, this, of the, the truth of the cycles of life and nature, and more connected with them. Acceptance and trust. And finally, a kind of freshness, what Suzuki Roshi calls a beginner's mind not starting the day or the sitting or whatever we're going to do 
thinking what's supposed to happen. Now I'm going to sit down here and meditate and see if I can get it to be what it was the last time or when I did that other retreat or try and make myself quiet or have some plan. But to really let ourselves come and sit down without carrying the past into the present so much. Sit down and say, I wonder what's going to happen. What will be here? Will it be pain or will it be pleasure? Will it be neutral? It's all it will be, one of those three. Will it be light or dark, sweet or sour? And to discover, to bring more of the quality to our sitting or to our lives of discovery of what's new that's beginning, of what's old that's ending. True mindfulness requires a kind of caring, really a listening, not just with the attention and the eyes and the mind, but really with the heart to pay attention and care. To bring yourself fully, mindfulness, into a moment, which is what we practice when we sit. We just stop and practice being here more. Because how we live is the same as how we die. It's not going to be any different, folks. How you practice in your life, how you live your life, will be how you die. In Buddhist psychology, when they talk about the the states that arise at the moment of death, generally they're conditioned on all the states that preceded it, which is to say how one lived one's life. The end also contains the beginning. The beginning contains the end. There's a story. I often, I've often worked together and talked together with a a good friend and a a psychiatrist who's a, a kind of adventurer and researcher in consciousness named Stanislav Grof, who's done some of the pioneering work for the last 30 years and more with LSD and so forth in Eastern Europe and at Johns Hopkins. And he tells some really astonishing stories, having been the guide in hospital settings and so forth for 10,000 LSD sessions, including a, a series that were given at Johns Hopkins for people who were in the terminal stages of cancer, for alcoholics there was a program, for people um, going through Um, radical life changes. They experimented when it was legal for a while with a whole group of people. And his research shows just this enormous range of experiences that come out of the human mind, especially when that drug, which in a way is kind of just an opener of the inner doors. But the one that I want to tell you about tonight... uh, One of the directors of the program at Johns Hopkins, also a professor there, was a a man named Walter Pankey. And he and his wife and children went up to their cottage in Maine one summer. And Walter was a skin diver. Went out into the ocean with his oxygen tanks and wetsuit to dive one day off the coast of Maine and never returned. It was really quite tragic um, and very difficult because he left three children behind. And his wife was quite bereaved by it all and, and lost. Uh, and one of the programs that he was managing at Johns Hopkins at that time, beside the ones for cancer patients, was also one to make LSD sessions available for people in grief or great life transition to see what, experiment and see whether it was useful. And so his wife eventually went there as a kind of completion and had a session, which was guided. And partway through the session, after lots of other things of grief and whatever came through her, she had a very deep vision in which Walter appeared. This is a true story. And he told her that he was fine and told her all the things that that he felt was important for her to know in the bringing up of their three children, one at a time, went through each of the children. And then he released her, explained what he'd learned from their relationship and what had been so important for him and how much he had learned about love and what the difficulties had taught him. 
and then really released her to go on and live her life fully. And she was half coming out of that and wondering whether, well, maybe this was just her, her need for reassurance creating a fantasy. And then she went, kind of closed her eyes and went back in and Walter reappeared. And he said, oh, one last thing. Up in the attic in one of the trunks is an old book that I borrowed many years ago from a friend and promised to return to him, a very important book. Please go and look, and when you open it inside, it will have his name and the address where you can find him written in it. And he explained where the book was to be found, and he said, thank you for this, and then he disappeared. <laughs> so she went home after this, and never having looked in that trunk and never having seen the book before, went up in the attic and opened the trunk, and there was the book, and there was the name, and there was the address. It's to live somehow more in the mystery of life, of its beginnings and endings, that every beginning has an ending and every ending contains a beginning, that they're contained within one another. And we get stuck in some ways by pretending that the endings are so real and getting lost in the drama or fearing them in some way or avoiding them not wanting to deal with them. Where's Nasruddin again? Nasruddin was wandering in a graveyard. He stumbled and fell into an old grave. Beginning to visualize how it would feel if he were dead, he heard a noise. It flashed into his mind that the angel of reckoning was coming for him, though it was only a camel caravan passing by. Mullah jumped up and tripped over a nearby gravestone, stampeding several camels. The camel drivers beat him with sticks. He ran home in quite a distressed state. His wife asked him what the matter was and why he was late. I've been dead, said Mullah. <laughs> Interested in spite of herself, she asked, what was it like? Like that, he said. <laughs> Not bad at all unless you disturb the camels. Then they beat you, he said. <laughs> What's beginning for you today? What have you fixed in your mind that death is like this or that this relationship should stay like that or this piece of work or, or this meditation practice, this state or this experience? should always stay that way. What have you fixed? And what would it be like to let go? What's really beginning today? What asks for acknowledgement of that? This too is changing. This too is being born. Bringing some awareness of this mystery of beginnings and endings into our life is really what meditation offers. Very, very simple. But if the heart knows that, it knows everything it needs to know. I want to close by reading you something from Krishnamurti. This is called Krishnamurti, His Last Journal. You know, Krishnamurti died a couple of years ago. And this was the last journal that he dictated. He couldn't even write. His hand was, was a little a shaky in his last years. So he di dictated these. And this is the very last two pages of his last book in which he talks about death, naturally. <coughs> Walking down a straight road on a lovely morning, it was spring and the sky was extraordinarily blue. The high mountain was there, impenetrable, and the hills below were green and lovely. And as you walk along quietly, Without much thought, you saw a dead leaf, yellow and bright red, so simple in its death, so lively, full of the beauty and vitality of the whole tree and the summer that had just passed. Strange that it had not withered. Looking more closely, one saw all the veins in the stem and the shape of the leaf. Why do human beings die so miserably? so unhappily, 
with, the, with a disease, old age, senility, the body shrunk. Why can't they die naturally and beautifully as this leaf? What's wrong with us? In spite of all the doctors, medicines, billions of dollars, hospitals, operations, and all the agony of life and the pleasures too, we don't seem to be able to die with dignity, simplicity, with a smile. Once, walking along a lane, one heard behind a chant, melodious, rhythmic, the ancient strength of Sanskrit. One stopped and turned round. An eldest son, naked to his waist, was carrying a terracotta pot with a fire burning in it. He was holding in another vessel, and behind him were two men carrying his dead father, covered with a white cloth, and they were all chanting. One knew what the chant was. In fact, Krishnamurti chanted very beautifully when he would let himself do it. And one almost joined in. They went past, and one followed them. They were going down the road chanting, and the eldest son was in tears. They carried the father to the doors, no hearse, no black carriage. It was all quiet and utterly dignified. This is kind of a meditation, so listen in that way. And one looked at that leaf and a thousand leaves of the tree. And winter brought that leaf from its mother onto the earth, and it would presently dry out and wither and be gone, carried away with the winds and lost until earth again to create a new leaf. As you teach children mathematics, writing, reading, and all the business of acquiring knowledge, they should also be taught the great dignity of death, not as a morbid, unhappy thing that one has to face eventually, but as something of daily life the daily life of looking at the blue sky and the grasshopper on a leaf. It is part of learning as you grow teeth and have all the discomforts of childish illnesses. Children have extraordinary curiosity. If you see the nature of death, you don't explain that everything dies dust to dust and so on, but without any fear, you explain it to them gently and make them feel that the living and the dying are but one. Not at the end of one's life after 50 or 60 or 90 years, but like the death of that leaf. Look at how many old men and women, decrepit, lost, confused, unhappy they are. Is it because they've not really understood the living and the dying go together? And one would like to help. One would like in education to bring death into some kind of reality, actuality, not of someone else dying, but to each one of us, however old or young, day in and day out, having to face this truth. It is not a sad affair of tears or loneliness or separation. As one looked at that dead leaf with all its beauty and color, maybe one would very deeply comprehend, be aware of, what one's own death must be. Not at the very end, <coughs> but at the very beginning. <coughs> death isn't some horrific thing, something to be avoided, something to be postponed, but rather something to be with, day in and day out. And out of that comes an extraordinary sense of immensity, and mystery. That's the end of Krishnamurti's words on death for this life. <laughs> Please, we have some time for your thoughts or questions or what you like. Did anyone befriend a tree this week? Remember last week we had an exercise or the week before? about looking at trees in your neighborhood? Evelyn. I have difficulty deciding between two trees. <laughs> Isn't life like that? One tree was extremely tall. It must be 50 feet high. It stands three trees. But the one next to it is not exactly as perfect. But it has 
please. A tree hugger, huh? That's right. Thank you. Please. It needn't be. Thank you. This is a lot. Thank you very much. Hmm. Well, then maybe we'll end. May I read you a poem as a way to end? And then a few announcements. The poem is called Nomads. No one quite remembers how we wandered into these phantom repetitions day after day of raising and lowering our tents. Clouds like mitten hands beckon from every ridge, changing arrivals into exits as we are slowly inhaled by our destination. Half asleep in the saddles on our mares, we gaze at one another as one gazes at another driver in slow traffic. There's not so much to say. White figures like soft statues circle round us in the night, their hands pressed over their hearts as if cradling miniature orchids or broken links of chain. They say the secret is to do the wrong things calmly. <laughs> and dawn by dawn, in mapless wonder, we are learning the landscapes to avoid, learning our one death perfectly. It's a poem by a woman named Virginia Campbell in a defunct journal called Zero, Buddhist Life and Thought. Some friends published some years ago. They say the secret is to do the wrong things calmly. What a wonderful lie. <laughs> so I hope this week that you can do the wrong things calmly. <laughs> and that the rest of the generals and presidents and others will continue in the same fashion. 
Now, a few important announcements. They won't be so long. The first is that I, unfortunately, have to go away for a few weeks. I go to teach in San Diego, and then I go to Florida. Next week, the class will happen, and Anna Douglas, who's given some talks here before, will be here either by herself to give a talk or together with Sandy Boucher, who has a slideshow of nunneries in monasteries, but particularly women's um, monasteries in places of practice in Asia. Um, the weeks that follow, uh, for the following couple of weeks, would anyone like to bring a tape and play it? Anyone? Lois, do you feel like doing that? You don't have to. Anyone want to volunteer to come and, and uh, open the place and bring a tape? You'll volunteer Vern, good. Okay, thank you. If not, let's find somebody else. Thank you, Constance. A few other brief announcements. First, about upcoming things and then a couple people in the room. There's a day long at Green Gulch, February 6th, Saturday, that I'm leading. And you can call Green Gulch Zen Center if you wish to go to that or, or send them $15. There is um, a weekend at the end of February that Jamie and Christina Feldman are doing uh, up in Santa Rosa. And then a women's retreat that follows that and the retreat with Ajahn Sumedho for 10 days in Santa Rosa in March. And he's a wonderful teacher. Daniel Barnes, who is sitting over there and has done a lot of the videotaping of Stephen Levine and Ramdas and myself and others, especially in regards to the work <laughs> with healing and AIDS, is showing all of the videotapes at Zen Center starting at the end of January on Saturday evenings as a series. Um, and also, there will be a group for a meditation group for caregivers, people doing hospice work or other things like that, in San Francisco at the AIDS Foundation on Thursday evenings. Um, and that's up here if you want information about it. Um, two other announcements. On the back table is a place for anyone to sign up for mailing list who's interested. Um, the, the Inquiring Mind will be out next week with all of the schedule printed in it. And there's also a basket for donations for people who haven't come before. The class is free, and the tradition for the last 2,000 years and more, for 25 centuries, has been to give freeling teachings as freely as possible um, and allow the people who value spiritual life to support it so that in Asia you can go to a monastery and be fed and clothed and taken care of all for nothing. We'd like to keep that alive in this country so there's no charge, and at the same time, your contributions or your support to enable me to live and teach and rent for this place and so forth, all of that are helpful and, and quite deeply appreciated. The last is that there were a few people who needed uh, rooms or other things. Who, who had announcements? Patricia? I uh, was lucky enough to get to go to the three-month course, but I gave up two things, my job and my Zafu. <laughs> if anybody has an extra Zafu that they're not using that they'd like to either get rid of or sell inexpensively, and if anybody knows about temporary or permanent work, I have about 25 years of secretarial administrative work. I'll be right over here for a while and help some of Carol, please. Um, a lot of meditators are familiar with this book, The Universe is a Green Dragon. And I just found out that the man who inspired this book, Tom Barry, is going to be here in Marin for a weekend in February. So if anybody is interested in finding out more about that, just be me ask it. Okay, Lori, where are you? I have some rooms available in my house in San Francisco for a woman out of Oxmoke. So if anybody's interested, either see me or I have a flyer. Thank you all. Let's take 30 seconds to sit and a little chant and we'll end. <coughs> Be aware of whatever's here, whatever's beginning, whatever's ending. Whatever it happens to be, let it be.
Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Pachatangwe Titapu Vinyuhiti Nati Santi Parang Sukang which loosely translates from the Sanskrit as they say the secret is to do the wrong things calmly. 